a very good evening to you. Thanks for coming out this evening, and it's very good to see lots of us here. Um, we're going to meet Chris in a moment, but before he comes up, uh, I wanted to talk about this pigeonhole.at. So um, often when we ask questions, maybe we're a bit nervous kind of um, speaking in front of everyone. So we want to give everyone the opportunity to ask their questions. And so we're going to try out this new way of doing it. Now, I know we did something at Christmas quite similar, and it worked well. Everyone got on board. Uh, this is the similar thing. Uh, you just need to go to pigeonhole.at and enter Lent1, and then you can ask your question through that. And there's this extra feature, I think, where we can vote for what sort of questions we like. So you might not have a question yourself, but you might think, actually, I want that asked. Uh, and you can vote it up or vote it down. Thank you. Uh, it was next. Thank you. We can mark that one answered. Great. Thank you. Good. It was always going to backfire, wasn't it? There we are. Good. Let me um, welcome up Dr. Chris Ansbury. Let's give him a round of applause. Uh, just to embarrass him. Um, Chris, thank you so much for coming to Amazing Stoke and uh, speaking to us this evening. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, first of all, how did you become a Christian? You are a Christian. I am a Christian. Um, I became a Christian at the age of 19. Uh, I grew up in a very warm, uh, loving home. Um, we went to a uh, Catholic church. I was catechized in the Catholic church. Um, it made absolutely no sense to me. It had absolutely no inf impact, influence on the way in which I lived my life. Um, in my late teens, got involved with the wrong crowd, um, heavily involved in substance abuse, which carried on into my first year of university, um, after which I didn't return. Um, my uncle, who was a Christian in our family, came to visit me, sat down with me, read the Bible with me for the first time, um, sent me off to a Christian rehabilitation center um, where I thought they were nuts and they thought I was nuts. Um, and my punishment for thinking they were nuts was I had to write out, transcribe the Gospels. And by the time I was halfway through Matthew, I was totally transformed. <laughs> Everything clicked. Um, so I went through that program for about eight months, then went and lived with my uncle and was discipled by him before returning to university. And here I am now. Grace, what a wonderful um, <laughs> testimony to God's grace. Um, you're not from here, is that right? Yeah, no. I know that. <laughs> uh, where are you from? Tell us a bit about yourself and your family. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, in the States. Um, both my family and my wife Carolyn's family are still there. Um, I met my wife Carolyn at university in Southern California. We've been married now for 14 years. Um, we have four kids um, from ages uh, whoa, eight, six, four, and eight months. Um, mm. And now I've been in the UK for six years. Great, it's great to have you. And um, what is it you do? So Over I that. lecture in basically Old Testament, um, Biblical Hebrew, some other areas around that, but that's effectively what I teach. Mm -hmm. And where do you do that? I do that at Oak Hill College. And we know, some, <laughs> lots of us know some people at Oak Hill College, um, so Chris knows lots of them mm. uh, as well. Um, the Old Testament, I guess for some of us, can feel quite, um, quite distant. Um, perhaps we pick it up and we try and read Leviticus or something, and we think, ah, goodness me, I don't understand uh, what it's all about. Um, why get in 
into something yeah, that seems yeah. quite distant from us culturally. Yeah, after becoming a Christian um, and being involved in my local church alongside of my studies, um, it became very apparent that the Old Testament really wasn't taught or preached as much. Um, and so through my studies, I thought, you know what, I want to try to remedy that. Uh, if, if people think that this is just a strange world out there in the Old Testament, to what degree can I familiarize them with that world and then encourage them to teach and preach um, that world that fully informed um, the New Testament authors, the New Testament text itself, mm -hmm. Jesus' ministry and identity. Uh, so I, just, I saw something of a disconnect there. And so that prompted me to try to fill that gap. Great. And you're speaking on the Old Testament this evening? I am. I've been doing quite a, a, a bit of work over the last, what, 15 years on the book of Proverbs. And so these are some different aspects that come out of um, my work there on Proverbs. Great. We're really looking forward to it. Thank you for Great. coming this evening. I'm just going to lead us in prayer, mm -hmm. and then um, Chris will speak to us. <coughs> Psalm 119 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. How we praise you, our gracious Heavenly Father, that you have not left us in the darkness. Thank you, Father, for that testimony to your grace in Chris's life, for bringing him uh, to know uh, your Son and his Saviour. And we thank you for the gift of your word, our Father, that lights our paths. And we pray now, as Chris speaks from it, that it would do that work. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would enlighten our eyes and change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, thanks very much, Rob. <clears throat> it's a delight to be with you uh, this evening. I do hope that you have a handout because that will serve as something of a roadmap over our two sessions together this evening. Um, both of our talks this evening really fall under the umbrella of the title right at the top there which gives us a sense of what the book of Proverbs is after, what it's about. It concerns the formation and transformation of our character in accord with God's character and God's wisdom. And so if you'll allow me, I'd like to orient us to our two sessions together um, by discussing two particular matters there under point A. I'd like to sketch sort of the nature of wisdom according to Proverbs, and then offer a brief description of the purpose of Proverbs, both of which I hope in some way will provide something of a framework for our discussion of some very particular features that we find especially within Proverbs 1 to 9. So first, what in the world is wisdom according to the book of Proverbs? Perhaps we might ask this question from a different angle. In our contemporary context, how might one define wisdom? What is wisdom? Is it simply one's intellectual capacity, whatever that might be? Does it concern a particular skill, some form of craftsmanship? Does knowledge equal power? some of the ways in which we might define wisdom in our contemporary context. But according to Proverbs, these definitions are far too narrow. Far too narrow. For Proverbs, wisdom is both an intellectual and a moral quality. Put differently, 
Wisdom is knowledge of right living that emanates out of a virtuous disposition, virtuous character, and manifests itself in concrete actions. It's knowledge of right living that emerges out of a virtuous character or disposition and manifests itself in concrete actions. In this respect, it appears that wisdom encompasses the entirety of our being. Our mind, our affections, our attitudes, our tastes, our actions, our speech. According to Proverbs, wisdom is holistic. It's not about the head alone. It's about one's whole being. It's holistic, both intellectual and moral. What then is the purpose of Proverbs? It's captured right at the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. It's a distillation of the very purpose and agenda of Proverbs. Here we read the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For what? Proverbs 4, gaining wisdom and instruction intellectual virtues, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, practical, pragmatic virtues, instrumental virtues, doing what is right or righteous, just and fair, moral virtues, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's a snapshot, a summary of the very purpose and agenda of the book. Taken together, These opening verses indicate that Proverbs is not strictly concerned with the intellect, nor is it concerned with success or personal happiness. Rather, Proverbs is concerned with the holistic formation and transformation of our character in accord with God's character and wisdom. Put differently, we might say that the book of Proverbs seeks to form God-fearers. It's for God-fearers. No one else. Fools, scoffers, lazy, other people mentioned in this book, they cannot learn. Because they don't possess the right posture. They don't possess the right attitude. They don't possess the right relationship with the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, who live in relationship with the Lord, is who this book is for. And it's a book that's designed to form God-fearers. We might say in contemporary parlance, the book of Proverbs is concerned with discipleship, with formation, transformation, our character, mind, desires, feelings, worldview, all in accord with God's character and wisdom. And this evening, we will focus on just two aspects of Proverbs' project of education 
for character formation. Namely, discernment, to whom do you listen? And desire, what do you want? Two aspects of the wise life that are captured by those questions. To whom do you listen? And what do you want? Let's take a look at each of these, beginning with that first question, to whom do you listen? A question that seeks to form in us perception, discretion, the ability to discern voices, especially deceptive voices. Now, the quote there on your handout under point B is taken from Esther Meek, and it illuminates, I think, the importance of whom we listen to. She says, Every act of knowing requires normative guidance, both from worldview commitments and working maxims. But they also involve, most fundamentally, authoritative guidance from other persons. Authoritative guides do not fabricate or teach us to fabricate the real. That is, genuine authoritative guides don't fabricate or teach us to fabricate reality. Rather, they teach us to see what is there. Without human teaching, humans do not learn to talk and thus do not learn their world. We learn in relationship. We don't just sort of self-generate knowledge. We learn in relationship, through guidance. With that in mind, point one, to whom do you listen? Does it matter? And if so, why? Take a moment. I won't call on you and ask you to share. Just take a moment and consider these questions. To whom do you listen? Does it matter? And if it does, why? 30 to 45 seconds-ish. Jot down some ideas. We are bombarded by voices every day, from personal conversation with, with others, to the internet, podcasts, radio, television, advertisements, and so the list could go on. In different ways, these voices invite us to view our lives and view the world in particular ways. We hear them. And if we listen to these voices, that is to say, if we follow them, then it matters. Whom we listen to influences not only what we think, but also how we think. And whom we listen to influences how we live. The book of Proverbs recognizes these realities. It recognizes that we're constantly bombarded by voices. It recognizes that these voices influence what we think, how we think, and how we live. And it provides us with wisdom to discern, to interpret these diverse voices, and determine which ones to heed. Now, before we explore the matter of discerning voices 
in Proverbs. Allow me to give the issue a sharper edge. Genesis chapter 3, as you know, narrates the fall of humanity. And, among other things, this fall into sin is due to Adam and Eve's failure to discern a deceptive voice and listen to the right voice. The woman submits to the serpent's interpretation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She takes the serpent at his word, and so does Adam. By listening to the voice of the woman and eating from the tree, Adam trusts in a deceptive guide, an unauthorized voice. Whatever hidden motives may have been at work in the event of the fall, Genesis chapter 3 indicates that both the man and the woman listened to and followed the wrong guide, the wrong voice. They exchanged the divine guide for a deceptive guide. And so, the Lord God delivers a curse. And as for the curse on the man, what is so striking is that God provides a reason. He provides a rationale for this curse. In Genesis 3, verse 17, where we read, Because you, Adam, listened to the voice of the woman and ate, cursed is the ground. Because you listened to the wrong voice, cursed is the ground. Among other things, the fall is the result of Adam and Eve listening to the wrong voice, following the wrong guide. In light of the place of listening to the wrong voice here in Genesis chapter 3, let's turn to the book of Proverbs and explore its treatment of our theme. The reality that we are bombarded with different voices that influence what we think, how we think, and how we live is reflected throughout Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. In fact, we might describe chapters 1 to 9 of the book of Proverbs as a war of words. To get a feel for this war, let's consider the combatants, their tactics, and their goals. First, the combatants. The combatants in Proverbs' war of words are rather clear. On the one side of the battlefield, we find the parents and lady wisdom. On the other, we discover the sinners, the wicked, the adulterous woman, and woman folly. What are we to make of these combatants? Well, let's begin with the parents and Lady Wisdom. Now, Proverbs says very little about the parents. And this is not surprising since it seems very little needs to be said. The parent-child relationship is among the most intimate of human relationships. It's a relationship governed by love, trust, sacrifice, discipline, and guidance, just to name a few. And these dynamics of the parent-child relationship are evident throughout Proverbs 1-9, to where the parents instruct this child, guiding him or her in the way of wisdom and life. Lady Wisdom offers the same guidance, guiding one in the way of wisdom and life, 
but much more can be said about wisdom's nature and character. As a personification of God's wisdom, that is to say, you know, wisdom as some sort of abstract concept that's imbued with personal characteristics for the sake of attraction, for the sake of teaching, wisdom as a concept personified reflects God's character in the book of Proverbs. You just look at that catalog there on your handout toward the bottom of page one. Lady wisdom is a reflection of God's character. Similar to the Lord, wisdom's words are true and right. She speaks in accord with righteousness, and wickedness is an abomination to our lips. Unique expressions that are used elsewhere only for God are now associated with wisdom. Similar to the Lord, wisdom possesses and implements those skills that contribute to the establishment of order and harmony and peace within society. Namely, in this case, counsel, resourcefulness, and strength. And similar to the Lord, relationship with wisdom brings life. Lady Wisdom is depicted as a person who reflects God's wisdom and character. And Lady Wisdom is also depicted as the one who embodies or incarnates what the book of Proverbs seeks to instill in us as readers. All of the fundamental virtues the book seeks to inculcate within us, wisdom embodies. And so again, you see now on page two of the handout in that catalog, the way in which wisdom embodies those virtues and characteristics. Wisdom speaks what is right, or righteousness, which is what, according to Proverbs 1 verse 3, the book is trying to instill within us. Wisdom's words are just, aligning with the justice the book seeks to instill within us, according to chapter 1, verse 3. And along those same lines, wisdom walks in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice. Her manner of life, her lifestyle, the orientation of her life is marked by justice and righteousness, which is exactly the sorts of moral virtues Proverbs seeks to instill in us. According to Proverbs 8, prudence is wisdom's flatmate, an intellectual virtue the book seeks to instill in us. Wisdom embodies the fear of the Lord, which, according to chapter 8, is hating evil. And she has insight. All of the different moral, instrumental, and intellectual virtues this book seeks to instill in us Wisdom possesses. Wisdom embodies them. She's a reflection of God's character and wisdom. And Lady Wisdom embodies all of these virtues. In large part, Lady Wisdom is characterized, as we'll see, by her words. Her words, her voice, reveal her character. Or if we were to borrow and tweak Jesus' expression, we might say, wisdom's mouth speaks what her heart is full of. If the parents and Lady Wisdom reflect God's character and direct us in God's will along the way of wisdom in life, then the sinners, the wicked, the adulterous woman, and Lady Folly do the exact opposite. 
as the opponents of the parents and Lady Wisdom. These characters embody a lifestyle and walk along a way that leads to death. Now, if we group these adverse, negative character types together and reflect on their descriptions within Proverbs 1-9, to we discover that these characters are a mere image of the Lord and Lady Wisdom. Again, under point two there, in the, toward the top of page two on the handout, that catalog, the words of the wicked, according to chapter two, verse 12, are perverse, whereas none of wisdom's words are crooked or perverse, according to chapter eight, verse eight. The adulterous woman's speech is slippery, whereas according to chapter eight again, wisdom's speech is straightforward. It's clear. The wicked walk in dark ways, and the adulteress's paths wander aimlessly, whereas wisdom walks on the way of righteousness and justice. And finally, the door to the adulteress's and woman folly's house is the entrance to death, the very portal to the underworld, whereas we learn that the door of wisdom's house is the threshold of life. Again, We see here the interconnection among one's speech, one's character, and one's manner of life. They're inextricably linked. One's speech, character, and the path on which one walks. The battle lines of Proverbs 1-9 are drawn between these conflicting characters. The combatants lead one to different destinations, one to life, the other to death. The question is, how is this battle fought? And here we come to those verbal tactics, point B. We've already suggested that this battle is fought with words. And in this battle, who one listens to determines not only what one thinks, but also how one lives and where one goes. Words capture the tactics of these combatants in Proverbs 1-9. to What sort of verbal tactics do these various voices deploy? Let me mention just two. First, the various voices or characters deliver promises, attractive promises. Take the parents' teaching, that first lecture, in Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 19. Here we encounter this invitation of a gang of murderous rogues. Let me just read verses 10 to 14, where the parent says, My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, Come along with us. Let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us. We will all share the loot. We might read this invitation and walk away thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous. This doesn't tempt me in the least. Perhaps this is just simply saying, don't hang out with the wrong people. I think that's what's part of the message here of this lecture, but certainly not all. And have another look at that invitation. Look at the promises. Come with us. 
Let us lurk. Let us ambush. Let us swallow. We'll find. We'll fill. Throw your lot in with us. We'll all share. They offer community. Us. We. All of us. Community. Camaraderie. A sense of belonging. In fact, they offer an egalitarian community, one that shares a common purse, a community where everyone is equal. You don't have to listen to anyone. And they promise all sorts of valuable things, as well as a house filled with spoil. I mean, who wouldn't want these things? Who doesn't want community, a sense of identity, belonging, wealth? What's striking is that what these sinners offer is on offer by Lady Wisdom. According to Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom possesses enduring wealth. In fact, she fills the treasuries of those who love her. And according to Proverbs 9, she invites those who listen to her into her home to enjoy her food and find community. We could mention several other examples. The point is that the combatants in Proverbs chapters 1 to 9 make the same promises. They make the same promises. They offer us wealth, community, satisfaction, among other things. They sound exactly the same. Just like our advertising companies, just like voices on the radio, what do you want? What satisfaction? I have it for you here in this product. Long life, peace, get rich quick. Different voices, same promises. And in this war of words, one's fate is determined by discerning which voice is deceptive and which voice is trustworthy. The second verbal tactic, which we'll explore in a bit more detail in our second session, is seduction. Now, while this form of speech appears in several places in Proverbs 1-9, to it's seen most clearly in the speech of the adulterous woman. I mean, this woman, as you might know, seeks to lure the addressee, and by implication, lure us as readers, into a sexually promiscuous act. What's striking is that this woman does not seek to do this through her looks. The adulteress is mentioned far more frequently than any other combatant in Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. She appears in chapters 2, 5, 6, and then again in chapter 7. And in each of these cases, we learn that her external appearance has nothing to do with seduction, nothing to do with her tactics. It is not her looks that lure it is her seductive speech. And this form of speech is mentioned every single time the adulteress is mentioned. So in chapter 2, verse 16, she's introduced as a wayward woman with 
seductive words. In chapter 5, verse 3, we learn that her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Her words are sweet, perhaps even sticky and slippery. In chapter 6, verse 24, the parent warns us of the smooth talk of this woman. And in chapter 7, we not only hear her voice and her words for the first time, but we also discover that the parent, again, describes her speech as smooth talk. The description of this woman's words indicate that her speech is sweet, it's polished, it's seductive, it's attractive. Together with the comparable promises offered by the characters in Proverbs 1-9, to the seductive speech of this woman and others capture the tactics involved in this war of words. And we can develop this further as it concerns Lady Wisdom, who also uses seduction as a tactic. Just have a look at her credentials, her CV, as it were, in Proverbs chapter 8, just, just verses 12-21, to where she seeks to woo us. through her character, her credentials, her benefits, her authority. Attractive promises, seductive speech, characterize the figures within this war of words, within Proverbs 1-9. to And these tactics complicate the issue of deciding who to listen to. So, To conclude this discussion of war of words, let me just say a brief word around the goal of the different voices in Proverbs 1 to 9, the top of page 3 of the handout. What's the goal? What do they want? In a word, they want our allegiance. That's what they want. They want our allegiance. They want us to embrace them, to accept their words, and by implication, to accept their lifestyle, to accept their worldview, and to accept their fate. Put simply, these characters want us to answer the invitation that they all give, the invitation that Jesus gives, the invitation to come. Come. So, what is the difficulty in discerning the different voices here in Proverbs 1 to 9? It's the same difficulty that we face when we attempt to discern the different voices that bombard us each day. Like many of the voices that we hear each day, the voices in Proverbs 1 to 9 are appealing. They promise us things, attractive things, like wealth, satisfaction, success, honor, status, community, identity. These voices offer us the same exact promises. But the character of those offering these promises differs. And perhaps more importantly, the means by which these promises are achieved differs. So in chapter 1, the sinners promise wealth by means of ambush, theft, murder. By all accounts, it appears they gain wealth. They get what they're after. But their vision is short-sighted. 
They do not perceive that the ultimate end of their actions is death. The same is true of this adulterous woman. She offers the thrill of secret sex and the promise of sexual satisfaction. And by all accounts, it seems her promise holds true. But only for a moment. She doesn't tell the whole story. She offers a short-sighted vision. It's only when the parent employs wise perception in chapters 2, 5, 6, and 7 that we get the whole story. A momentary act of illicit sexual promiscuity will bring physical pain, psychological torture, social disdain, economic loss, the wrath of this woman's husband, according to chapter 6, and ultimately, in each case, death. I suspect that we too are prone to suffer from short-sightedness or lack of perception. We hear different voices making attractive promises, and what these voices promise isn't necessarily bad. Wealth, satisfaction, honor, success, community, identity are not evil in themselves. But the way in which they are achieved may be evil, we may fail to see beyond the promise to its potential consequences, and we may justify the means in order to achieve the end. According to Proverbs 1-9, to our failure to discern deceptive voices may be due to a lack in our perception. We do not possess the wisdom to discern, perceive, or see how our choices may relate to God's will, his revealed will, or to the consequences that are associated with our actions. But in addition, according to Proverbs 1-9, to our failure to discern deceptive voices may also be due to a failure or a defect in our character. And this seems to be the explanation given in Proverbs chapter 9. Here, The extended introduction to the book culminates, point D and under number four on page three of the handout, the introduction to the book here culminates in chapter nine with these invitations from Lady Wisdom and Woman Folly. Not surprisingly, they sound exactly the same. Exactly the same. From the heights of the city, Wisdom invites the simple into her home to dine at her banquet. In the same way, from the heights of the city, Folly invites the simple to come into her home and dine at her banquet. Same invitation, verbatim. The meals differ, however. Wisdom prepares a luxurious spread while Folly invites one to bask in the adrenaline rush of secret sin and enjoy her stolen food. We're forced to choose a woman, a house, a banquet, The one we choose will depend on the one whom we listen to. And the one we listen to will reveal who we are. It will reveal our character. You see, wisdom calls us, in chapter 9, verse 6, to repent. She calls us to turn away from our simple ways and turn to her for life 
and satisfaction. In contrast, folly calls us to turn inward on ourselves. Turn inward and find satisfaction in self-centered, sinful desire. Two women, two houses, two banquets, two fates, delivered through the same exact invitation. To whom will we listen? Which will we choose? It will depend on our character. It will depend on whether we turn and repent, turn from ourselves, and turn to God through wisdom, or whether we turn inward toward ourselves and continue in our sin. Proverbs 1-9 to thrusts us into a world of competing voices, each of which are vying for our allegiance. In the same way, we live in a world where we're bombarded by voices that are vying for our allegiance. To whom will we listen? To whom do you listen? It's a basic question that carries serious consequences. As we mentioned earlier, we see this question and its consequences in Genesis chapter 3. The woman listens to the serpent's voice. She trusts the wrong voice and the wrong guide. Adam listens to the voice of his wife, and in so doing, he trusts the wrong voice and the wrong guide. In a sense, we might say that the entire history of God's people in the Old Testament is characterized by them failing to listen to God's voice through God's authorized guides. According to Proverbs, a wise person is by definition a listener. And the wise person does not trust in his or her wisdom. That is to say, the wise person does not think that he or she is wise in his or her own eyes. The wise knows that they need a guide, a voice, one to direct them in the way of wisdom. This guiding voice is prominent throughout Proverbs 1-9. to The parents may allow the sinners, the wicked, the adulteress, and woman folly to speak, but Unlike Adam and Eve, the parents and Lady Wisdom do not leave it to this son, this daughter, this child, or leave it to us to figure out whom to listen to or whom to follow. The parents and Wisdom interpret these deceptive voices, unmask their pseudo-promises. They tell us where their words will lead down the path of evil to death. Proverbs 1-9, to in this respect, trains us to discern deceptive voices. And it does so through the voice of God's authorized guides. In this case, the parents and Lady Wisdom. Now, friends, if you're a Christian, you are, in one respect or another, God's authorized guides in the different dimensions of life. At home, in your workplace, in your relationships with others, in your different ministries. Who are you listening to? How are you guiding others to listen to the right voice? 
How are you guiding others to discern deceptive voices, pseudo-promises, and the consequences that come with their actions? It strikes me that God the Father only speaks on two occasions in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. God the Father only speaks on two occasions, at Jesus' baptism and at the Transfiguration. At both, he discloses the status of Jesus, his son, the one he has chosen, the one he loves, the one with whom he is well-pleased. But at the Transfiguration, he provides us with an additional piece, an invaluable command. He declares not only that Jesus is his son, but he says, listen to him. Listen to him. The Father identifies Jesus as the authorized guide. The voice to whom we are to listen, trust, follow. And it is my prayer that we will do that ourselves, as well as in our role as God's guides to others, helping them listen to the voice of Jesus, and by implication, the voice of God through his word, as we seek to walk in wisdom through our Christian pilgrimage in this world. Thanks very much for your patience in this first hour. Eager to hear your questions. Thank you very much um, for guiding us um, through that first bit. There's lots to think about there. What we do, we just take 30 seconds. Um, the details of how you can ask questions are on the screen. You can scan this barcode thing, uh, or go to pigeonhole.at and enter Lent 1. Um, we've got a total so far of zero questions, so um, <laughs> it'd be great if we could have a few more, um, even if it's about my jacket. If not, I wonder if... Oh, here we go. Great. And so as these appear, I think you'll be able to see the questions as they come in, and... Vote for them. Great, which you're doing already. Terrific. Um, well, I don't need to be here, really, do I? You Great. can read the questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how is redemption conveyed? Let's ask this first one. Thanks for your questions, by the way. Um, keep them coming in. Uh, oh, very nice. Uh, how is redemption conveyed in Proverbs, uh, or is it merely a case of live like Jesus? Um, I think it's implicit in Proverbs. I mean, Proverbs doesn't operate under the framework of redemption. And the problem of Proverbs, as well as Ecclesiastes and Job, has been that it doesn't play by the rules of salvation history. You can't sort of nicely slot it into a big storyline of the Bible, because it's not concerned with Israel as a nation. It's not concerned really with the nation at all, but with individuals. It's not concerned with Israel's past, their history. It's concerned with how one might live life wisely and well. It doesn't talk in terms of redemption, but it assumes redemption, and here's why. You cannot acquire or grow in wisdom unless you fear the Lord. That's absolutely fundamental. And so we begin to unpack, what does it mean to fear the Lord? I mean, traditionally, it's sort of, you know, we live in awe or reverence of God, which is, which is part of it. But that fear 
captures, an, it's an attitude. It's a posture. It's, it's one developed out of not only relationship with God, it's fear of the Lord, one that exists in relationship with God and knowledge of God's will, but one that also recognizes who one is and one's dependence, ultimate dependence on God for wisdom. Now, that isn't cast in the language of redemption, but it seems to assume some sort of intimate, personal relationship with God and knowledge of who God is in his will that, at least from my Christian theological perspective, does in fact entail some form of redemption, forgiveness, that makes that sort of relationship possible in the first place. So while Proverbs doesn't use this language of redemption, it seems to be assumed and in one way or another packaged into that fundamental concept, that presupposition of the fear of the Lord. And as a case of live like Jesus, I mean, yeah, to an, to an extent, I would say the ethical vision, the life that is projected within the book of Proverbs is no different from the ethical vision and the sort of kingdom life that's projected in the Sermon on the Mount. They might be packaged in different ways, but the ethical vision is the same. And I think here we can latch on to, as it concerns this live like Jesus, a very important Christian theological concept throughout the centuries, which is one of the imitation of God. Proverbs, in a very sort of practical, rubber-hits-the-road way, forms us and shows us and prods us and teaches us how we might, in the seemingly mundane of everyday life, imitate God, reflect his character. Thank you, Chris. Um, I want us to have time for one more question. Thank you for a very clear answer. Um, I've got this one here, which should appear on the screen behind me. Uh, how do you know whether you are listening and being influenced by something or just understanding a different point of view? I think there, the key word then becomes listening tied with influence. To what degree has a particular person, let's say, or a particular opinion or a particular voice influenced you? And what does that influence look like? Has it not only shaped, let's say, the way in which you might think about something, but has that also translated into the manner in which you live your life? Um, has it affected or influenced in any way the sorts of relationships that you have? I mean, here, there's not only a sense of self-reflection, sort of diagnosis of the degree to which you've been influenced one way or another, but I think that also has to take part in, in terms of interpersonal relationships with others. I mean, we're so good at self-deception. So easy to deceive ourselves. And according to Proverbs, you know, don't listen to a person's praise. Listen to how another might praise you. It's another's opinion that's most, more important than your own personal opinion about yourself. And so even that interpersonal interaction can enable you to see whether you're not simply listening, but the way in which, and the degree to which, and the different ways in which you may have been influenced by a particular perspective, view, for good or ill. Can I just push you on a little bit yeah, yeah. on that for 10 seconds, 20 seconds? Sure. Um, a lot of people would push back on that today and think, yeah, sure, I get the point. I listened to my parents when I was growing up, but yeah, yeah. now we're independent. We make our own minds up. We discern ourselves. Um, I don't feel like I'm actively listening to anyone. I'm listening to my heart, that kind of thing. I mean, how would you 
answer. I think that that um, is a manifestation of the sort of individualism and autonomy that post-enlightenment modernism has created and it just won't go away. And Proverbs doesn't even think in those categories. I would say scripture doesn't even think of those categories. You're always in relationship, whether not only in terms of relationship with God, but in relationship to a community who you should always be leaning on and bouncing things off of rather than simply a, I am my own isolated person who sort of self-generates knowledge, or even if I do happen to listen to something that somebody else says, sort of tweak it in my own way. And that sort of isolationism becomes very dangerous um, without others, without community. It's just not the way that it's designed to be, and it's not the way in which Proverbs perceives it, depicts it. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we're going to have to pause for refreshments so we can top up on caffeine. Um, What we do, I think I'll split the room here, Michelle downwards, um, and if you guys want to go and get tea and coffee uh, or whatever's at the bar, and then um, we're going to ask one more question for everyone else just to keep us entertained, Um, but if you, from Michelle downwards, want to go and get a coffee, Colin's staying put. Chrissy's got to go, though. (laughs) Thanks for running with the question thing. Uh, They're coming in, so thank you. For everyone else, uh, just while people filter through the door, for everyone else, um, we've got this question come through. Um, We're bombarded with so many voices today. How do we discern the voices of wisdom from those of folly? Again, I think Proverbs um, helpfully depicts this in terms of Voices that sound the same, that offer the same sorts of things, but it remains that that sort of, at least in terms of those antithetical character types, you only see the facade. And it's the virtue of perception or discretion to begin to think through what sort of dominoes begin to fall if I buy into this. What are the implications of this sort of perspective, of this form of action, of responding in this particular way? It's seeing beyond whatever promise or voice um, might be on offer to a consideration of what will this mean? What are the potential consequences? Now, we might not be able to see those clearly, but what Proverbs invites us to do in community is to think through that and to allow the voices of others to help us as we seek to decipher and perceive and interpret these different voices out there to come to grips with the potential consequences. Their words, their, the form of life, whatever they have on offer might bring it in, in their wake. And how do we do that work, though, Chris, looking beyond the offer to the consequences? Beyond the offer to the consequences? Well, I mean, I think it's, it, it becomes um, situationally specific. So what is on offer? And then, as a result, what other sorts of factors do I then have to account for for will this take my time, energy, what sort of implications might that have in terms of family or relationships or other things that I'm involved in, um, to my resources, so many different factors that are going to be specific to whatever sort of voice is on offer and whatever it might be asking either from us or whatever it might sort of offer us that is either pseudo or genuinely true. Authentic. It, it's they're just. I think it's going to be. It's too.
Unless you gave me a specific example. There. Yes, yeah. No, that's, that's very clear. Um, let's, uh, we're going to head to tea. Um, Chris will be here, so come up and ask him your question. Um, but yeah, let's all head through to tea, and we're coming back in about 10 minutes. Thank you. Well, thank you for bearing with me in that first hour. Um, here for our second hour, we're toward the bottom of page three on the handout, making a shift from um, discerning voices, to whom do you listen, to directing desires, what do you want? But before we think around what do you want and the way in which the book of Proverbs seeks to direct our desires, um, can I pray? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you speak by your spirit through your word to show us your son. Father, we pray now that as we look to your word, you in your great kindness would grant us wisdom from above, that you would conform our minds and our lives more into the image of your son, so that we might be those who reflect your wisdom and your character in all that we do for your glory and Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, let me try to set the tone here for our last session um, through the sequence of quotes that are toward the bottom of page three there on the handout. The first of which, from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or the wisdom of Winnie the Pooh from A.A. A. Milne. Sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. Hmm. Or Augustine, at the beginning of his confessions, you, that is God, have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. As you examine yourself, your different responsibilities, what drives you? What do you desire? What do you want? What is your treasure? What makes up the most room in your heart? You have to jot it down. Just think about it for a moment. What do you want? There's a public theologian, a Christian philosopher, who says that probably the most interesting question you can ask a person is not who are you or what do you do, but what do you want? What do you want? That'll really get the conversation going. <laughs> what do you want? This gets to really our second point there as we move along. Uh, who are we? Well, among other things, we are desirers, we are lovers. The contention that we, as human beings, are fundamentally desirers or lovers is a biblical notion that was emphasized and popularized not only by Jesus, but also by Augustine. This quote that we've just read, uh, a quote that is at the conclusion of the first paragraph in his Confessions, indicates that we are creatures, according to Augustine, 
who were created in order to praise God. That's why we were created. To praise Him. We were created to live in a particular relationship with Him. And that longing, that love, that desire for praise, for relationship, is ingrained in our nature. To a certain extent, we might say, that desire is deeper than our DNA. God has made us for Himself. And our heart, not our mind, our heart is restless until it finds rest in relationship with God through Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Desire is central to our condition. From the mundane desire to food or tea or coffee to our deepest ambitions, longings, pleasures, desire forms who we are. And it directs what we do. And our ultimate love, our ultimate desire, will in one way or another shape our identity. Desire is central to our condition. And Proverbs recognizes this essential truth of human nature. Proverbs recognizes that what we love or what we desire determines our identity. It determines who we are. You are what you love. The title of one of Jamie Smith's books, which is true. You are what you love. Proverbs recognizes this. Let me just give two examples of the way in which it expresses this. Now, top of page four of the handout, under point B. The first example is found in Proverbs 1 there, verse 22. Here, Lady Wisdom positions herself at the center of public life, amid all the hustle and bustle of the city, and she delivers a rebuke to three particular groups of people. And notice how she describes these people. She says there, chapter 1, verse 22, How long? Will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Wisdom characterizes these figures by their loves or their desires. To be more specific, she characterizes these figures by the objects they either desire or despise. Both the simple and mockers adore things that characterize their very nature. The simple love their simple ways. Mockers delight in mockery. I mean, the use of the same root word for these characters, simple, mocker, and what they love, mockery in simple ways, indicates that one's desires or loves are inextricably linked to one's character and one's identity. They're all bound up together. The same is true of fools. Whereas simple, simple and mockers are characterized by what they love or desire, fools are characterized by what they despise. They, they hate knowledge. 
The very thing the book of Proverbs seeks to instill within us. They hate it. They despise it. They have no taste for it. Wisdom's description of these figures highlights the intimate relationship between one's desires, one's loves, one's aversions, and one's very character. One's desires define one's identity and determine one's character. The second example there comes in Proverbs 2, verses 12 to 15, verses that describe the ways of the wicked. Here, we discover that wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Here again, we discover that what one loves or desires or takes pleasure in determines their identity. I mean, among other things there in verse 12, the wicked speak perversely. And they, verse 14, rejoice in the perversity of evil. Their speech matches that which defines their character. They delight in doing that which defines their nature. They delight in doing wrong and experience the euphoria of satisfaction in evil. It's not that the wicked or evil, etc., these character types in Proverbs, fail to desire. They're human. They desire, but they desire the wrong things. Their affections, their desires are warped. And we could mention many other examples. If nothing else, I hope just these two texts help us to see, not necessarily that the word lovers or desiring creatures, but more importantly, that what we love, what we desire, what we take pleasure in, determines, diagnoses our character our identity. More than this, it's important to recognize that what we love, what we desire, what we take pleasure in, drives us. Point three, drives us. Our desires direct our actions. The desire for food directs us to eat. The desire for a cuppa directs us to drink. The desire to glorify God should, I hope, direct and shape and influence every aspect of our life. The desire for community directs us to interpersonal relationships. Proverbs recognizes this essential truth of the human condition. In fact, many of the materials in Proverbs capitalize on the truth that what we desire drives the way that we live. It drives our actions. The materials in Proverbs recognize that we desire things, and whatever those things might be, shape us and direct us. So the book of Proverbs activates human desires and motivates us to act and to live in particular ways. Let's take a look at a few examples. 
the first and perhaps most pervasive desire that's used to motivate the wise life in Proverbs is the desire for life, survival, safety. All of us, I suspect, desire to live. And we desire to live a safe, secure, peaceful life. Proverbs understands this basic motivation. And so, to conclude her rebuke in chapter 1, verses 20 to 33, Lady Wisdom declares that those who reject her words, who refuse to listen to her voice, they'll be destroyed. Whereas those who heed her words will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. That's attractive. That's very attractive. We'll live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. In the same way, the parents and the second lesson, chapter 2, by declaring that the upright will be planted, secure, stable, safe within the land, whereas the wicked will be uprooted like a tree, cut down, destroyed. Chapter 5, the parents conclude their warning by saying that even those who think they can get away with their sins should think again because God sees everything. Everything. And sin invites death, life, survival, safety, stability, basic desires that drive our actions. But these are not the only desires that animate our actions. Proverbs appeals to several others. Just look there at Proverbs 10, verses 1 to 4. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring around wealth. Pretty basic, right? But what sorts of desires, what sorts of motives are the engine driving these sayings? A wise son brings joy to his father. A foolish son grief, heartache, anguish to his mom. What underlies this? The basic, fundamental, innate desire to please and honor your parents. Who doesn't want to do that? The very emotional fabric of the home. Who doesn't want to see that strong and stable? fundamental human desire to make mom and dad happy and honor them. It's the engine, the desire driving that proverb. Or verse 2, ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. Righteousness is better than wealth. It's a dividend that gets you out of death. You want wealth? Character's better. Who doesn't want deliverance from death? Well, it's righteousness that provides it, 
righteousness granted to us by our righteous Savior. Or chapter 10, verse 3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wise. I, as my wife will testify, I tend to get hangry a lot. When I'm hungry, ugh. Here's a saying, theologically oriented, that describes the way in which God responds to both the wicked and the righteous in terms of provision that operates under the basic desire for satisfaction, satiation, being filled by the divine host here. To lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. I mean, wealth here is like the, the carrot. Moving one, especially off the back of verse 3, with the Lord in view, to work. For that promise, hopefully, of that gain of some material reward. These sayings, and we could say in many ways the rest of the book, traffic in certain desires. Those desires and those motivations are the very engine within these materials. They seek to seduce us to live in particular ways by appealing to those sorts of desires that drive us. Proverbs recognizes we're desiring creatures and it attempts to direct our desires by showing how they might be satisfied through a particular lifestyle, a particular form of life. Motivating and directing desire, we might say, is fundamental to Proverbs' philosophy of education, its form of discipleship. It knows what makes us tick, what moves us, and the book uses the desires that drive us to direct us along the paths of wisdom in life. So where are we? Well, we're lovers. We're desiring creatures. We're driven by what we love or desire for the desire of life, security, peace, wealth, joy, harmonious relationships, just to name a few. But ultimately, according to Proverbs, what are we to love? What are we to love? Point four. Well, according to Proverbs, we are to love and desire wisdom, who is inextricably linked to God himself. We are to love wisdom. Wisdom is among God's defining attributes. Wisdom is the tool, according to Proverbs 3, by which God fashioned and ordered and filled the world. And wisdom captures that redemptive work that God has accomplished through his Son. To love wisdom is to love our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to live in accord with wisdom is to live in accord with the very grain of the world that God has created. Proverbs recognizes our need for wisdom, and it seeks to awaken our desire for wisdom, direct our desire to wisdom. And while this goal underlies much of the entire book, it may be illustrated through a particular text. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. If you will, let, let me read that for us. Proverbs 4, 1 to 9 where we read, Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so that you do not forsake my teaching. 
For I too was a son of my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. This instruction, this exhortation here in Proverbs 4 invites us to imagine the Father here in his youth and to overhear the instruction that he received from his own Father. The appeal here to past instruction, to grandpa's instruction, enhances the authority of the exhortation. And it allows us to see the transformative potential of this material. You see, here we have a wise, mature father recalling the words of his own father. The product is on full display if one listens to, grasps, embraces, gets, takes hold of, loves, cherishes wisdom, then one might grow to be a wise, mature adult like this father. It enhances the persuasiveness of the material. Now, following the father's opening exhortation in verses 1 to 2, he sets the scene for us in verse 3, transporting us back to the home in order to overhear the advice he received from his own father. And here, the instruction comes about in verses 4 to 9, which intermingle exhortations with motivations. What should I do? Exhortations with why should I do it? Motivations. And here we begin to see the intimate, familial language that is used to describe the way in which we are to embrace and get wisdom. Verse 4, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. I mean, drawing on language of intimacy, the grandfather addresses the very center of our being, our affections, our heart, and calls us to take hold of his words, embrace them, hold fast to them, for they grant life. And it's these words then that are delivered in the remainder of verses 5 to 9. I mean, just listen to the sequence of exhortations in verses 5 to 9. The, what should I do? Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget the, my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake them. Love her. Love wisdom. The, the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her. Embrace her. This is language of intimacy. It, it, it's language of relationship. I mean, wisdom here is depicted as a spouse, as one that we are to get, love, cherish, embrace at all costs. Since she is worth 
all that we might possess, we're commanded to deploy the full range of our economic and emotional resources to get her. And the motivations that punctuate verses 6 to 9 explain why we should get her. Why? Because in response to our loyalty, our commitment, our pursuit, wisdom will offer us protection, security, supervision, and care. That's why you should pursue her, get her. In response to cherishing wisdom, to esteeming her, revering her, revering her with our emotions, verse 8, she grants favor, exalting her lovers. And in response to those who physically embrace her, wisdom bestows social honor. Taken together, verses 5 to 9 portray relationship with wisdom as relationship with a spouse. It's a relationship that involves our attitudes, our emotions, our physical orientation. It's a relationship that must be pursued. It's a relationship marked by commitment, by loyalty, by love, by emotional esteem, by physical embrace. In the light of this relationship, it's not surprising that the grandfather's speech here closes with the image of marriage in verse 9. In exchange for our love and loyalty, wisdom grants her groom a garland and a glorious crown mentioned elsewhere only in the Song of Solomon in chapter 3, where the king wears this for his wedding day. All this talk of intimacy places wisdom and the acquisition of wisdom in the context of relationship. Wisdom is not something impersonal. That goes for our wisdom and what we know today. Wisdom, genuine wisdom, is not something that's just impersonal. It involves personal commitment. Pursuit. Stewardship. It's not just something we acquire and own in an impersonal sort of way. Wisdom, especially according to this count, is personal and interpersonal. And its acquisition is described through this image of one's pursuit of a spouse. Now, for those of you who are married, think about the way in which you pursued your spouse. For those who are not married, Think about the way in which you've pursued some goal, or perhaps more specifically, some relationship with another person. Think of the joy of the pursuit. Think of the time, the energy, the commitment, the emotional vulnerability, the affection involved in that pursuit. Think of the joy and satisfaction you received when you, in the language of Proverbs 4, got your spouse or got that friend that you pursued. The repeated call to get wisdom and get understanding in Proverbs 4, verses 1 to 9, indicates that wisdom is not just something that is 
passed along by virtue of osmosis. It's something that must be pursued, acquired at all costs. And this pursuit, at least in Proverbs 4, is depicted in terms of a pursuit of a relationship. How should wisdom be pursued? Wisdom should be pursued in the same way that you would pursue a beloved. Wisdom should be pursued as the ultimate, not object, but person. One in which you pursue in love. Why in the world does Proverbs 4 and other texts within this book use this language of intimacy and relationship? Because Proverbs knows that we're desiring creatures. And among other things, we hunger for relationships. We're relational creatures. We pursue what we desire. We pursue what we want, and we cling to that which we love. The grandfather here in Proverbs 4 taps into this reality of our human nature. He seeks to warm our affections and direct our desires through commands that are laden with the language of love and intimacy. This speech seeks to move us to pursue wisdom, for wisdom will grant that satisfaction that we long for. Proverbs 4 recognizes the power of desire and the intimate relationship between our desires, our character, and our actions. But Proverbs 4, now really on point 5, the last point there on the handout. Proverbs 4 isn't the only text that recognizes this intimate link between desire, character, and actions. We see it in other places within Scripture. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. As we discussed in our last session, the woman listens to and trusts the wrong voice. But more than this, the woman allows that voice to drive her desire to the wrong action. The serpent awakens her desire and directs it to a particular action. You know the sequence in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. The woman sees the fruit, that it's good for food, and it's pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. The fruit is good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. Desire drives her to take and eat. Desire drives her to the wrong action. And in this case, desire drives the woman to sin. The anatomy of this first sin is intimately related to James's description of sin's conception in the book of James in the New Testament, in chapter 1 of James, verses 13 to 15. According to James, desire plays a significant role in the birth of sin. 
James 1, 13 to 15, we learn that God cannot be tempted by evil. And God does not tempt anyone. Instead, James says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. According to James, our evil desires initiate a chain reaction that gives birth to sin and culminates in death. Like Genesis 3 and Proverbs chapter 4, James recognizes that desire is powerful. It drives us. It directs our actions. And it defines who we are. We're desiring creatures. To desire is to be human. Now, in itself, desire is neither good or bad. Rather, the object that we desire and the way in which we seek to satisfy that desire is good or bad. And Jesus helps us to see this with remarkable clarity, does he not? In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus provides us with a way to diagnose our desires, to diagnose our hearts, and by implication, our very lives. He calls us here in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, to store up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. I'm sorry, but this doesn't mean that you should just stop working and providing for your families. Jesus recognizes that earthly things are of value, but at the end of the day, they're just temporal. And those things aren't designed to bring definitive satisfaction. They're not built that way. These things, the things of earth, these earthly treasures, possess the potential to enslave our desires, to consume our hearts, and to prevent us from pursuing and doing God's will on this earth. So rather than storing up treasure on earth, Jesus calls us to store up treasure in heaven. These treasures are stored up by desiring and doing the Father's will, the very thing that Jesus did. Desire. And the heart are integral to this task. And Jesus makes this very plain in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 21, which we read at the front end of our time. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The antidote for desiring the wrong thing is a heart that desires the right, that desires and loves God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. More than identifying what we have, Jesus helps us to see who we are. He provides us with a diagnostic. So we'll end where we began our time in the second session. What do you want? What do you desire? How you answer those questions will help you answer another pair of questions. <coughs> Namely, 
Who are you? And what is the nature of your relationship with God? Thank you very much, Chris. Um, let's just take 30 seconds there, perhaps to reflect, to ask any questions, then we'll come back and uh, ask Chris uh, our questions. Thank you all for your questions. Thanks for some really thoughtful questions as well. Um, less on my jacket, which is great, uh, but more on some really, really thoughtful <coughs> questions. So thank you for uh, all the thought you've put into those. Um, just a couple of quick fire ones, hopefully. Mm. Um, the philosopher you quoted earlier. Who is that? Uh, James K.A. Smith. That's his name, James K.A. Uh, Smith. And he spoke about, asked the person what they want to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he has this trilogy of books, um, uh, the first of which is ooh, Desiring the Kingdom, the second of which is Imagining the Kingdom, and the third of which is Awaiting the King. Uh, and they're a helpful set of books where he's integrating all sorts of different things, but it's that, um, that first one where it sort of gets at the heart of the most interesting question is, what do you want? And drawing on Augustine and developing an account of how we are desires and how scripture and other things shape our desires. There's a great chapter on the shopping mall, which is worth the price it of the is, book. It is yeah. worth the price of the book, where the shopping mall is this temple that we enter into and engage in this entire liturgy um, that forms us, or in his word, deforms us in different sorts of ways. Great, thank you. Um, I've got a question here. Uh, what uh, role does our conscious have in perceiving wisdom or folly? Yeah, it, I think it, it plays an important role where it's just God's common grace that everyone, by virtue of their creation in the image of God, has what we might call a conscience. Um, I think that is, you know, common grace way in which Christian and non-Christian are like. What are do you mean, sorry, by common grace? So God, in his common grace, we might say, you know, brings reins on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Um, you know, has granted by virtue of the fact that even after the fall, um, Christians and non-Christians alike, Christians being renewed in the image of God, non-Christians not renewed, but yet still possess the image of God, um, possess some of these, these characteristics among them, the conscience. So, you know, even unbelievers have a conscience. I think that is just a common grace of perceiving wisdom and folly. I would say, you know, the Christian, by virtue of being renewed then in the image of God, being united to Christ by the Spirit and has fellowship with the Father, um, then not only has, you know, the gift of God's special revelation that is then, by virtue of the Spirit, illuminating uh, one to understand then in its thickness what wisdom and folly might be to a depth dimension, we might say, that's not available to the non-Christian. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, there's a couple of, kind of more technical questions here. I think we'll take this one first. Quite a few proverbs are also in the Egyptian writings. Mm. What does that tell us about God's revelation? I think that comes back to common grace here, uh, in that it's not only in those Egyptian instructions like Amenemope, um, but you also have many um, legal collections out there in the ancient world where the same exact laws that we find in, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy are found in those other places too. And it's, I think, there, a fact of common grace, where we might think of it in terms of the revelation 
that we find here in Proverbs or uh, more, even in the, these legal materials isn't necessarily in um, the law itself or the proverb itself, um, but the theological worldview and the framework within which it's cast. These Egyptian texts are operating in an entirely different theological framework where there are a multitude of gods. In fact, God in those Egyptian instructional texts is just a generic God so that everyone can kind of fill in the blank with whatever God they want because they worship a whole host of them. Not in Proverbs. And in fact, the entire you know, purpose of Proverbs 22 to 24, where many think you have that borrowing from the Egyptian instruction of Amenemope, is totally cast in a Yahwistic uh, theological context where the purpose of that instruction is to increase trust in the Lord. And there's an entire theological reworking of those materials to suit that context. So we might say, while God in his common grace allows people to come to certain conclusions or make certain laws that just make really good sense in their contexts, it's only by virtue of the framework within which they operate that we begin to see what is distinct, unique, special about these Proverbs or even those laws. Can you say a little bit more on that? Because I think a lot of us hear the Proverbs borrows or takes from Egyptian writings, and yeah, we yeah. think, oh my goodness, is the Bible really what it claims to be when it's borrowed from other Yeah, I think there, even in the concept cultures. of borrowing is a, I mean, you have to hypothetically reconstruct an entire process around, okay, let's just say for the sake of argument, we have this Egyptian text that's earlier than, you know, Proverbs 22 to 24. Okay, so did we learn hieroglyphs in order to translate this thing? Was there a Hebrew or Aramaic translation of it? How did it get to Israel? I, you have to create an entire narrative, hypothetically, in order to make it work. I think it's better to say, whether it's in this case or other cases where you have comparative overlap between materials out there in the ancient world and what we find in the Bible, is that you know, this stuff is just sort of in the air. That people live in here, to use uh, an expression by John Walton, uh, a common cognitive and cultural environment. There's some commonalities across people groups, ideas, things swirling around out there that can be appropriated in different ways. And I think th this is something that we have here. It's, we might say, sanct Proverbs sanctifying common sense in a theological framework. Thank you, very helpful. Um, question here on Proverbs 8. Um, is the personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8 a hint of the Trinity? Um, hint of the Trinity? I, I don't know that it goes so far as the Trinity. It might, I do think, in a very nuanced way, it provides us um, with the marks of um, the pre-existence the eternal pre-existence of the Son. The issues here are, among other things, one, we have a female personification. Two, if you read Proverbs 8.22, um, God creates wisdom, and then wisdom gestates in his womb, and then he brings her forth in birth. Which is why the Arians in the early centuries said, oh look, Jesus, if Jesus is wisdom, he was created. There was a time when he was not. We need to be very careful about drawing a line from Proverbs 8 to Jesus. That's exactly what the Arians did. Just tell us about the Arians. The Arians 
argued from this text and other texts that Jesus is not eternal. There was a time when he was not. He was created. He's a created being. And Proverbs 8.22 was one of the major texts they used. Oh, see, look, God created Jesus as wisdom and gave birth to him. We, as Orthodox Christians, believe that, no, Jesus is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. There is never a time in which he was not. And so there's a case in which I think we have to be very careful around this. And while I would say that the, the pre-existence of the Son, the eternal generation of the Son, is sort of vaguely in the background here. More specifically, there are unique terms and expressions here in Proverbs 8, like wisdom being called the beginning of God's ways, the firstborn, that are only terms used elsewhere of Jesus in Colossians 1, in the Colossian hymn, in John chapter 1 with the Logos. So it's as if not, oh, look, here we have Jesus in Proverbs 8, but look, Proverbs 8 provides this vivid poetic text that's like an artist's palette. Look at all these colors that were used to paint Proverbs 8. They're the same colors that John uses in John 1, that Paul uses in Colossians 1. I think it's sort of the language that can help us see some of the connections rather than, oh, look, there's Jesus in Proverbs 8. Because we can run into some serious problems with that. Yes, and lots of people have. Um, thank you. Um, should you close your ears to false voices, such as teaching on secular thinking, or listen to discern? I think, I mean, there's a sense in which you need to know yourself. Honestly. To what degree um, would it be healthy for you to just soak up as much sort of secular thinking so that you might digest it to discern? I mean, that's discernment in itself. But nonetheless, I do think that it's important to engage with the world out there. And, you know, even to go back to Augustine and his well-known expression taken out of Exodus 13, I believe it is, um, to plunder the Egyptians. There are plenty of things out there that are true and good. They're just in the wrong framework. So plunder them, use them, incorporate them. And by virtue of doing that, to what degree can you show your secular friends, your unbelieving neighbors, the way in which your Christian theological worldview and the way in which that can account for some of these very good things is actually much more attractive, makes much more sense than the way in which it fits within their own thinking and their own worldview. So there is a sense of sort of self-evaluation there. I, don't, I wouldn't encourage you to simply spend all of your time um, listening to and digesting other voices, secular voices, to discern them. But it, it, I think it's inevitable. And rather than sort of cloistering ourselves away, responsibly engage to whatever degree we can um, with these secular perspectives. Thank you. We've got time for one more question, um, and it's this. Uh, how does the language of desire time with Jesus' teaching about dying to self. And, and perhaps our question is getting at, you spoke a lot about appealing to our kind of innate desires. Mm. How does that kind of correspond with what Jesus says we should do? Yeah, I think here, uh, you know, there's a sense in which Proverbs recognizes that we are selfish. And it appeals to our selfish desires in order to form us into those who walk in the way of wisdom. What would that mean in terms of dying to self? 
Well, if one is wise, then one would look out for the well-being of the other and love the other as one loves oneself. So there's a sort of double attunement that's going on here. By virtue of the way in which Proverbs sort of directs and tugs at our desires, we become more aware of, oh, what do I love? What is my treasure? What moves me? Increases self-awareness of one's desires in order that one might be wise, walk in the way of wisdom, And that, of course, is then for the benefit of the other. The wise life is not an isolated, inward-looking life, but a life that looks out for the well-being of the other, my neighbor, creation, as I exist in relationship with God. So here we might say that while Jesus, on this occasion, um, emphasizes dying to self, Proverbs, we might say, emphasizes how selfish we in fact are and then uses that in order to move us and form us in the wise life so that ultimately we might love others just as we actually love ourselves. It's very striking. I was just looking at where Jesus says this. He does appeal. He says, um, whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. So there, there you go. That's pretty desirable. Yes, saving your life. Yes, anything to say on that? Well, no, I, I think right. there, it's a, there, there's, there's the motivation. There's the telos. Yes, yes. There's the ultimate end that would direct us to that form of action. Mm-hmm. Chris, thank you so much. Um, there's been some really helpful things to think about, and um, I think we'd all agree we've benefited a huge amount uh, from Chris's wisdom, so, um, which is derived from Proverbs. Uh, but uh, let's say thank you to Chris. Thank you. Just before we close, I'll lead us in a prayer for Chris and for us all. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving Chris this fear of you. Thank you, Father, for his understanding given to him from you. And we pray, Father, that you would keep him in the fear of you, that he would lead his family, the students, and his own life in the way of wisdom. And we pray that too for us all. Father, we are conscious we've heard many big ideas tonight. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to uh, discern uh, what we need to listen to, what we need to change. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you ever so much for your questions. Thank you for listening so well. And um, thank you for coming out. Um, In two weeks' time, we have uh, Chris Stead, who's also from Oak Hill, he's going to come and speak to us on the fatherhood of God and what it means to be adopted as his children. And the format's going to be like this, and uh, we'd love to see uh, lots of us back. So that's two weeks' time, same times. Thank you. Thank you so much.